We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid on Make Time for This. Proudly a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and Blue Wire Podcast family. This is your home for all things pop culture on the Eurostep Podcast Network. And it's your home for movies, first and foremost. Captured in Celluloid is kind of the anchor tenant on this feed, it would be safe to say, Andrew. And we love talking movies. And it would be impossible really to do a movie podcast and try to talk about a pretty wide range of films like we generally do and then not mark uh, the loss of one of the medium's true titans. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard died just over two weeks ago now, um, earlier in the month. And with that, I thought, you know what, this will be a good opportunity. Something Andrew and I talked about way, way back was it could be an opportunity every now and then we're like, oh, French New Wave. And Andrew could have something of a crash course and he could get to know an important director or an era of film history he wasn't familiar with. This seemed like a perfect opportunity for that, a perfect opportunity to maybe introduce some listeners who don't generally check out French New Wave movies as to who Godard was, why he was so important. And so we're going to talk about all of that. First and foremost, though, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, A lot of people don't actually realize this, that my uh, senior year thesis, despite taking sport management at North Carolina State (laughs) University, was actually a deep dive of the French New Wave uh, movement and uh, Godard himself. None of that is true. Uh, This was my first introduction to him as a filmmaker, and it went very well. So now I am well and uh, ready to talk about things that are way above my pay grade. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm slightly apprehensive of doing a podcast like this because Godard is such a colossal figure. Um, I believe... I read something once that no filmmaker has ever had more kind of academic writing 
written about them and their movies, which that would certainly seem likely. And with that, up front, I am not a guitar scholar. Have I seen quite a lot of guitars movies? Yeah. Um, was it something that when I really started to kind of get into film in a much more serious way that I intentionally said, I need to watch Jean-Luc Godard's films? Yes. Um, but he is not a director and even within the French New Wave, and this is a conversation we had way, way back in what I believe is actually the most listened to episode in the history of Captain Celluloid, um, was on a French New Wave director, and that was when we talked about the films of Jacques Demy. Uh, a friend, collaborator at times of Jean-Luc Godard, uh, also part of the French New Wave, the Nouvelle Vague, although coming under the left bank um, kind of delineation within that movement, as we talked about at that time. But Godard is... If you were to do the, if you were to do like the first take sports version of this Andrew if we were to go full Stephen A. Smith and we were to build a Mount Rushmore of the most important people in the history of film something that is still a very very young medium um, as much as there is a, a vast array of things to look back on now compared to most other art forms it's still very much in its infancy I don't think it would be possible not to have Godard up there. Up there. Um, he is easily one of the three to four most significant figures ever in any conversation about cinema. Because aside from what he did in his own right, I think his legacy and how he transformed, honestly, movies around the world... Um, has left just as big of an imprint. And it's part of what I was really excited to talk about with you in watching a selection of his movies. I I did my best to select what I felt was a representative portion um, of, I'll be upfront with it, the earlier stages of Godard's career. Rather, we, I wasn't going to throw Andrew in at the deep end with like film socialism um, or goodbye to language that's maybe a podcast for another time uh, many years from now but he is someone who made really bold and radical films that i'm not sure if they view as bold and radical now which is in part a testament to how successful they were in reshaping what the language of movies was and how people taught about making film who could make films too um, we'll get into some more kind of background, some biography of how Jean-Luc Godard came to be this great disruptor. But let's briefly start there with your impressions. Yeah, I think um, in watching them today in 2022, I think they appear very conventional. And I mean, for, for my type of viewing, I view them as almost mainstream entertainment. I mean, they, these are very easy to follow and digest films with interesting plots, great writing, and then obviously his visual innovations of the time are something that stand out as well. And I think, now I'll say I've done no research into Kadar other than watching these movies for this podcast. I'm just taking in what I'm seeing on the screen and just kind of forming my own opinions. And I've got, now I've got a list in front of me 
of directors that he's influenced that have either said it or you know it's implied based on their material um but a few of them stood out to me in the moment of viewing these films i mean i think of the narration uh in some of the films and the close-ups on the characters faces and it reminds me of malik uh the walking and talking scenes like maybe in breathless as uh uh one of the characters is selling newspapers and um our problematic protagonist is bending her ear as they're walking you know up and down the the streets it reminds me of something in a link later movie i mean you've got a, a a dance scene in Band of Outsiders that is something that could uh, be in my favorite Alex Garland movie, Ex Machina, or uh, the beginning of Koganato's After Yang, just in a more of a public setting. So it's just so clear. Do you know? Do you know what uh, that one actually kind of is in? Uh, um, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. So That's... Tarantino's in there as well. Uh, even even with some of the Anna Karina or is it Karina? Karina, yeah. Anna Karina, even uh, her hairstyle in, in some of these films is just very uh, similar to Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction during some of these scenes. It's it's obviously obvious so many of these modern directors that we would put up amongst our favorites and the greats of certain eras after this are paying homage and stealing from Godard. And it's something that I had... Uh, very little knowledge of going into this. I mean, even something like Alphaville is clearly, clearly, clearly very inspirational to David Lynch and something is uh, like Twin Peaks even. I mean, definitely has some vibes that could be credited to Godard. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's clear just how much he shaped um, modern cinema, cinema, even with this, what, seven-year stretch that you're describing at the beginning of his career when he, he was creating these films that we talk about today. And, I mean, uh, I going into this, I always try to have an open mind because, um, and this is an argument I get into with my brother all the time, because I think going into something, like, I was born in 1992. I'm 30 years old in the year 2022 a Jean-Luc Godard movie that I'm watching now is not going to be like a Scorsese movie in the same way that I consume it and break it down and relate to it just because of the way filmmaking has changed, the way we perceive entertainment has changed. And then obviously we live in a culture now that's watching things on screens. we got screens in front of our face so often. Like it's, you need to think about what these films were at the time of their release. I think when providing any kind of critical analysis, towards them and uh i would say they hold up regardless and i just found these so incredibly watchable despite i mean they're most of the films i think they're all under two hours um some are under an hour and a half and there's some elements of i guess i don't know if you would describe it as slow cinema there like he lets his movies breathe in certain points and other points they accelerate but i don't know i just feel like he was working at such a high level from both a craft and entertainment standpoint so early in his career that it's not a shock to me that he almost has defined several different types of filmmakers and several different types of uh, filmmaking. Yeah, he sure has. And I, I guess to to get into some of that, so uh, Jean-Luc Godard, I think as he would uh, describe himself, was uh, a Franco-Swiss. He was... Um, born in in France, spent a lot of time, family home just across the border. 
um, born in 1930. So obviously living in that part of the world um, in his kind of childhood into his teenage years, as World War II was going on, there was good reason for his family to spend some more time in Switzerland. His family background is very much wealthy, upper class, intellectuals. And it certainly afforded him a way of thinking um, and also probably for the time, just a level of access to kind of, I don't want to say art in terms of that will kind of bring to mind, oh, a young Jean-Luc Godard watching kind of art house films from the age of eight or nine, because I, I don't think that is actually accurate. He came to, to film a little bit later than that. But in terms of what he was reading, what he was aware of, how he was processing the world, um, was very much not your run of the mill kind of, even compared to many of his peers within the French New Wave. So by the time he came to film in Paris and started to attend kind of cinema clubs and got to know many of the people who alongside him would define maybe the most influential era and movement that uh, movies have ever seen he was dealing with a level of ideas and sophistication that was highly unusual and capable of thinking about film in a really deep way and in something that I relate to it seems like that once he decided oh he was into film he was obsessively into film and the real progression, I think, in terms of if you want to get from how does young Jean-Luc Godard go from kind of, I guess, some aspirations as a, a burgeoning intellectual to being someone who is kind of this thinker at the forefront of cinema culture in France from a very young age. Um, it, it comes from getting to know and then getting to write alongside a lot of the most important people in the history of French film at that, that time. And primarily in his time writing with Cahiers du Cinema, uh, again, one of the most influential publications in the medium's history. Um, at the time it was set up, Andre Bazin was maybe the most important film critic in the world. Um, the likes of Francois Truffaut, uh, Claude Chabrol, Jacques Rivet, who was a good friend and peer of Godard's at that time, Eric Romare, they, they all, before they came to be the defining voices in a directorial sense, they were the foremost critics who were kind of taking on an interesting mission before even most of them were making films. I mean, Truffaut obviously comes true as the, the first to break through and really open up a wide range of possibilities for what that group of filmmakers could do. But Cahiers de Cinema's mission is kind of interesting. And I don't know if it's counterintuitive for someone who just kind of has an idea of Godard as this kind of stuffy, pretentious French filmmaker. But one of the things that they really kind of reclaimed was the legacy of a lot of kind of under underappreciated um kind of degraded hollywood filmmakers a lot of really elite technicians a lot of people who made films that were genre films 
And in terms of how American cinema culture and even English speaking world viewed them, they were not treated with a whole lot of respect. Um, Howard Hawks is probably the most significant figure among this and particularly for Godard. Godard viewed Howard Hawks as uh, possibly the greatest filmmaker ever, certainly the greatest American filmmaker um, at the time when he was writing. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a really notable example of this. Again, for people who maybe they love movies, but they're not fully kind of enmeshed in what the histories of movies and how the reception of films and filmmakers has changed over time where Hitchcock seems like this ubiquitous figure as like this legendary filmmaker who is just central to what movies are today and were 50 years ago. That is not the case. He was not viewed like that in a contemporary sense. Uh, Many of his films were very poorly received and it was a lot of the carrier to cinema filmmaker are critics who went a long way towards I guess, reclaiming and rehabilitating the image of filmmakers like that. Nick Ray being another one. Um, Samuel Fuller, who we may get to later, one of the many directors that Godard at some point casts as themselves or just as randomly pop up within his films. So that's one of the things that is always really striking. And I think it's important to keep in mind that when you get to the movies that he makes, and some of the decisions that he makes. Godard was someone who was looking at the things that I guess were not classically appreciated, were not traditionally appreciated, but he was recognizing the technique and he was seeing it as a kind of a true essence of cinema um, that a lot of these directors had. And really a lot of what he looked to was Hollywood movies. It was American cinema as the gold standard. He he certainly revered uh, Jean Renoir in, in his homeland. And there were a number of other kind of filmmakers from that time, but it was the championing of him and many of his, his colleagues at Cairo de Cinema that helped kind of get some reappraisals in motion. Um, if not quite in the moment, very close to it for a lot of really now kind of pivotal directors that have kind of pride of place in the all-time pantheon. If it wasn't for for Carrie de Cinema, if it wasn't for Godard and Bazan and Truffaut. Someone like Andrew Saris maybe doesn't pick up and champion a lot of those people. Andrew Saris then famously kind of develops auteur theory. And a lot of just the things that define how film is analyzed for right or wrong to this day do kind of come from that. So for anyone who has no idea about Godard, I think that's something that's really important to establish first and foremost is he was a deep, deep thinker when it came to film, and he was an important critical voice, along with a whole cohort of people who came to be some of the most celebrated filmmakers in the history of world cinema. Um, the benefit of that, then, is the influence that those guys built up, the way they were able to kind of mix and match and share ideas and help get each other started, relationships did not always stay quite as close or collaborative as time went on. Um, But for example, Breathless is something that Truffaut had written drafts on and was originally looking to make himself and Godard eventually got him to agree to, to pass the story on to him and it became Godard's directorial debut. So that's, that's kind of first and foremost, that is the, 
the backdrop for Godard and who he became and how he eventually got to make films. I think the, the thing that comes with that is the kind of films he liked and the approach he then took to making movies could not have been further away from what traditional studio filmmaking was, not just in Hollywood, but in other countries where there was deep ingrained traditions, the likes of France, the likes of Germany, although not so much at that time for obvious reasons, the German film industry had essentially relocated to the US and most of those guys had become the most important directors in Hollywood cinema. Um, but when Godard comes in, a lot of his innovations are practical. Like, immediately, I was struck by you noting, which is right, and is true for a lot of filmmakers this era, but his movies tend to be 90 minutes shorter, maybe one hour 45. I, I think that is the the absolute kind of high end of the, the films that I, I gave you to watch for, for this exercise, um, which we probably should actually flag up first and foremost, if I remember correctly, correct me if I get any wrong here or if I forget any, I told you to watch Breathless, uh, Viva Seville, uh, Lemma Pre or Contempt, Band Apart, Alphaville, uh, Masculine Feminine. Yep. I have regrets that I didn't get a Andrew to watch a uh, woman is a woman. That's that's really on me, and I feel like that's probably going to be Andrew's favorite guitar. It is mine on the rewatch. But I was trying to give a and kind of an interesting mix of that early stage of his career. Um, when he comes to make breathless, though, part of the reason a film like that is the way it is. Part of the reason it's ninety minutes is cost <laughs> very simply for equipment for film stock there had been a big breakthrough in terms of what you could do with handheld cameras really spearheaded by Jean Rouge um, a French documentarian who Godard really admired his work and who had also implemented some kind of pretty interesting techniques notably the jump cut and the jump cut is I guess most widely credited as Godard's innovation. It was certainly him who brought it to light in Breathless, where all of a sudden you have this filmmaker who's not afraid to mess around with the kind of temporality of things. And everything is in a neat continuity cut. You're getting these jarring sudden movements that are kind of bringing this edgy vibe to the film that are very much aligning with the story, aligning with the psyche of the lead character. And for all of the kind of the cool that drips off of Breathless and a lot of Godard's films from the script, um, it is also just crucial. Some of the decisions that he makes that, again, now we see jump cuts all the time. You could turn on TV and it could be any run-of-the-mill TV series and there'll be a jump cut and nobody's going to look at it and think, wow, what a bold artistic choice. It's something that people just understand. You can do that um, at this point. That was not the case at the time jump cuts were pretty shocking um breaking the fourth wall something which Godard employs often and in very diverse and interesting ways not something that was all that common and all in all whether it's kind of how he would structure his stories 
how his films were edited together. Um, and then maybe not quite as much in Breathless as some of his other films, but then also just his choice in terms of shot types and the kind of lenses he would use and how he would frame close-ups or how he would stage tracking shots, going handheld for tracking shots, which would have been a big no-no at the time. A tracking shot would have been a really classical studio-like kind of Orson Welles grandiose kind of thing. The idea that you're just kind of kind of run and gun that on a street was not something that was established at all. It just wasn't how films were made. Um, and while it seems very obvious to be like, well, somewhat, why don't they just pick up a camera and I want to make a film, I want to make a film about this, I've got my people together, let's go and make this thing, which essentially becomes like a core ethos of movies from this point on, right through to like American independent filmmaking in the late 80s into the 90s and still to low budget films today. It just it didn't work like that before Godard simply went and did that. And one of the crucial things to talk about here, which you noted up front that these films to you, they feel kind of like mainstream films. Breathless came out and Breathless landed as a mainstream film. It was doing lots of things people hadn't seen before. And that certainly led to kind of an adjustment. But it was successful, uh, much more successful than Godard wanted it to be. He largely resented its success. Uh, but it was right from the jump. People saw this. It was a jolt of energy. And I guess whatever movies were thought of up until that point, they were reborn with Breathless. They became something entirely different. And he would only go on to further kind of evolve and revolutionize from there. But let's let's start with Breathless. It's a film that you, you watched for this exercise. Uh, I Did you watch this first? I feel like I told you to watch Breathless first because I do think it is the perfect introduction. Yeah, I watched it first, and this is the one I'm furthest removed from, unfortunately, due to unforeseen delays. Usually there are delays in scheduling me to watch movies. This one wasn't my fault. Um, But Breathless, uh, yeah, uh, I loved it on first watch. I... Of the ones I watched, and like you said, there's some that I have to watch as well where you say they might be my favorites. I don't know that Breathless is my favorite of the ones I watched, but I think it's the best of the ones that I watched. And it landing as a mainstream film isn't just isn't surprising to me, despite the, like you said, innovative uses of jump cuts and uh, kind of the just like in the, the city handheld style filming they were doing. Um, thematically i think it's it's just it's something it doesn't apply to all the films i've watched but there's something that's uh consistent among the Godard films i've watched it's a problematic male protagonist who's rough around the edges some more so than others a little misogyny mixed in here or there and then there's a a lead female character who is meeting them on their level to a degree even obviously uh, of the time there's probably some still imbalance in the way those relationships play out over the course of a few of his films but i think uh and it's also like something that that Godard had a knack for casting is just like the most beautiful woman you've ever seen in your life as as one of the the lead participants there 
And then, and obviously, uh, in, in Breathless, Michelle is would have thrived in the anti-hero era of the television of the Tony Sopranos, the Walter Whites. Uh, so groundbreaking stuff there potentially, but just uh, thematically, just the way the two characters play off one another, uh, a guy that's taking life bull by the horns, uh, everyone else around him be damned, and then another character who's being more pragmatic about doing things the right way and, and working towards something. Uh, I found that uh, narrative contrast really compelling. Um, and then I, I think, uh, you know, I'm a sucker for a, what I'll call good ending. And that just means an ending that is maybe a little challenging or makes you think a little bit. And I think this, this has an exceptional uh, ending as well. Uh, and a lot of the Godard films I've seen, there's a, an element of tragedy for at least one character's arc by the time that we we mm-hmm. uh, reach the end, and I think that's definitely true in Breathless. And I don't know, he just he ca- comes out of the gates guns blazing and just tells a really compelling kind of a, for lack of a better term, outlaw story about this just very. Uh, mixed up and kind of a shit heel type of guy and it, it just works so well obviously uh we've got uh jean paul belmondo uh his character is just like i'm gonna be humphrey bogart in the, a world of my, exactly own, it, of my own creation and i think that's just such a a great conceit for this character because he's cool but the, and he's arrogant, but there's also like you can see the seams and you can unpeel the coolness and there's an insecurity there. And I think that just ties together so nicely. And these characters are so fully formed, even even though I don't speak the language. It's just like you've got everybody figured out and the way it progresses from point A to point B. I think it's really compelling, really not challenging, but definitely thought provoking as it goes on. And like. I mean, what more do you want out of a movie? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, Godard loved Humphrey Bogart. And Jean-Paul Belmondo was told to literally, you know, impersonate Bogart at points in this in terms of his facial expressions. And that is really what it's drawn from. And that's not the last time in Godard's films that that kind of uh, anti-hero noir undertones or overtones maybe in some cases are very much there and present but I, I think what makes Breathless different and interesting is it has a nastier edge and I, I think Michelle has a nastier edge than Hollywood would ever allow to be in those characters um, how much is really there that's redeeming is very much up for debate but yeah based based on a, a true story that uh Francois Truffaut had found in a newspaper many years earlier. And honestly, it sets a template too. And I'm guessing this probably crossed your minds one way or another. Um, most, most importantly, it ultimately ends up being a template for something like Bonnie and Clyde. When, when Arthur and Penn yeah. makes Bonnie and Clyde and that is essentially the the moment again some of the stylistic decisions and how violence is presented in that film that launches the new hollywood that gives way to the whole wave of filmmakers that honestly still to this day in some cases are defining what hollywood films are your martin scorsese's your francis ford coppola's uh, all of that comes in true bonnie and clyde and from breathless uh, Band Bandapar also has elements of that. Um, Piero Lafu also has elements of that. So it is it's something that is deeply ingrained in kind of what Godard finds interesting. Um, the idea of the girl and the gun is kind of absolutely fundamental to how he views just like how do you make a movie? What is your setup? And it's worth mentioning, like we talk about scripts, Godard's movies are nearly all improvised um and he would just make stuff up as he went along and some actors found that process easier to work with some found it difficult but he would he worked in images and he worked in kind of bold ideas and to him that was one that continued to be worth returning to and for movies in general it's one that continues to be worth returning to like bonnie and clyde is one example one of my all-time favorite films and a film we've talked about on the podcast before badlands is another example like the the template for that kind of two young people run away um troublesome young man with a short fuse and pretty reckless and uh kind of innocent girl gets caught up in it but maybe she's smarter than him all along like this is very much kind of a core archetype for a certain Hollywood movie and it really does take its form with Godard and with Breathless. I don't want to take us off track but um there's something else that came into my mind when talking about like what I think of now when I think of Godard and I think he's one of the best directors I've ever seen in working in confined spaces because there there's a scene in Breathless where we get to the end of the film where um Patricia is kind of revealing to Michelle that she's she's spoiler alert. This movie's been out for uh, 
62 years. 62 years. Um, watch Breathless. Um, she's revealing that she's given him up to the, to the police, and they're like she's circling him in this room. And as the dialogue's unfolding, and at one point he kind of like makes her repeat herself, and she continues circling and says it in a slightly different way. And I thought, like, I that was the first moment in a Godard film that really blown blew me away. Is like, oh, this is the kind of shit that like I like in a movie, and that's very similar in Contempt, where. Uh, the male contempt contempt has the line though that I, I do think kind of gets to that and gets to the essence of guitar and gets to also guitar may not be like my number one favorite filmmaker of all time but I very much team guitar in terms of how he views filmmaking there's, there's this great interaction in um, contempt which I won't say the main story of that movie but I guess just the kind of the backdrop of that movie is doing a lot in telling us about Godard's feelings of, you know, the institutional elements of filmmaking and the ideas of, I guess, what we now call to be suits, interfering with creative vision and, you know, what really is film, what makes a film. Um, But there's this interaction with Fritz Lang, by the way, as the director, playing himself, again, pointing to the people Godard reveres and, along with Samuel Fuller, who ends up um, in Pierre LeFou, a lot of these directors, Godard has got to play themselves in his movies at some point. Um, There is this interaction where the producer, um, played by Jack Palance, I believe, is kind of having a meltdown in a screening room about it not being like the script. And the response is, you know, a film is one thing on a page. It's another thing made with images. And that scene you talk about in Breathless, it's not even confined space, I think, as much as just using space and using movement and being like, this is this is film, so it requires movement. Like, this conversation is not as interesting just delivered statically with shot reverse shot. And Godard, in his days as a critic, um, actually wrote a really interesting essay defending shot-reverse-shot techniques and classical filmmaking, and he often used it to great effect and comedic effect within his own work, but he, he understands where to use it and its place, and that you can't just build a film around that. So that's a great example of this crucial, crucial conversation. The movie hinges on it, and the, the kind of playfulness that's there because he's a really playful filmmaker in spite of the fact that he's also, I mean, from a very young age, an incredibly grumpy man. And and that is there in all of his movies. There is certainly a cynicism, but there's also just kind of a sourness. And yet, whether it comes across in his techniques um, or just in kind of quips here or there, there is always this playful undertone too that is distinctly Godard, that tends to ground his films and I think would make them much tougher to watch if that wasn't in there. Yeah. And I, I think it's, this is going to sound weird, but I think one of his funniest films, despite also being probably the darkest of, on the whole is Alphaville because the, it, he balances out just like the, uh, the what's the like autocratic, I guess, overlord world, that mm-hmm. is being introduced with just absurdity about the world. And then I, uh, a character um, 
grounding everything with you know the like i think maybe despite his grumpiness maybe what he would view as positive like aspects of the world like poetry love art whatever it may be um so i think all of those like kind of circling one another in that movie um it makes it i think one of the funniest parts of that movie for me and it's why i'm laughing is just like the level three seductress aspect of it i think it's just <laughs> possibly a little sexist i'm not sure but i think it's more to highlight the naivety and stupidity of men rather than anything else um but i don't know yeah and just like the obviously that that's that's a very cool and absurd movie but yeah the, he does a good job of i think uh balancing out the humor and the absurdity of life despite i think his worldview at the time and the way he feels about humanity at large and society at large is very 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 cynical and you know what i can relate and appreciate to a lot of those feelings and those notions that's kind of how i view the world um right now like something as simple as um (laughs) <laughs> me me not being able to understand why people don't understand why i have a problem rooting for a racist baseball team <laughs> and it's just like you see the world and you're like i'm trying i'm trying to think about how i can strip away some of my negative qualities and start being better and then the world around you is just such shit so you're like why do i care so i think there's a lot of that uh cynicism in his filmmaking despite the humor and then like the the alphaville character and that monologue he goes on about like love and art and the things that the alpha 60 is stripped away from this this world i think probably at his heart those are the things that are the most important to him yes if, as you 100%. said he's a, a grumpy man um and just like the the arcs of so many characters in these films that it's like we become intertwined. We all have our motivations, our wants, our needs, and this is going to end bad for somebody. It's just like a very interesting aspect of a lot of his films. Like, so one of those fascinating things about Godard is, um, as I mentioned earlier, Breathless was a big success. And immediately in the aftermath, he was talking about how he had fallen out of love with movies because it was so successful and he hoped everyone hated his second film so he could fall back in love with movies and throughout his career then he had this thing where he would constantly proclaim the death of cinema uh weekend which is probably his eighth ninth film i think it comes out in 1967 fascinating fascinating film it ends with an end card um, which is not just Finn, it is the end of movies. And by the time Godard starts making his documentary films um, with Gorin, and I don't want to say his experiment or his, um, I don't want to say his political films because there's a lot that's obviously overtly political, and we'll probably touch on that some more in a few minutes. In the early stage of his career but when he tended to just turn his camera in a different way um he began to resent and essentially turned his back on all of cinema history all of the stuff that was incredibly important to him as a younger man and later in his life you see this kind of turnaround where he makes um his epic miniseries uh histoire de cinema which is this experimental kind of collage 
where he tells the story of the 20th century um, running concurrently with, I guess, the story of 20th century film and how the two things inform each other and what it comes out as. And then he moves on to things that are just deeply, deeply experimental and not really like a whole lot else that would ever get the level of distribution that a John Luke Godard experimental film does. But with that, it, it so often he would be the first person to vocalize how basically sick and tired he was of movies. And by the time he passes away at the age of 92 this month, he leaves behind like over 100 films <laughs> and he was working into his 90s. Like That's going to be even... uh, us with podcasts. <laughs> well, but we're past that mark already, but... He, there is there's even i actually i haven't seen anything since but it was a question when he died of like well have we seen the last john luke Attar film is there something he'd been working on that we don't know about that may see the light of day one day it wouldn't be surprising because that's that's who he was he was endlessly innovating in spite of the fact that he uh may bemoan the medium and may turn his back on what he'd done before and what he loved before. And in talking about Alphaville, I think one of the interesting things with that film and talking about cynicism, I don't know, did you read anything about Alphaville after watching it? Or I think you're in here completely pure, which is you've just yeah. seen the movies. Okay. That's it's, Oh, are you going to ruin parts of it for me? No, no. Uh, well, okay. Alphaville. So that character um, played by Eddie Constantine, let me caution is, kind of like a James Bond-esque character in France at that time. I want and, to be him for Halloween. Well, <laughs> which version of him you be is interesting because the character of Lemmy Caution was famously happy and optimistic. And Eddie Constantine had been playing the character very successfully in some of the bigger hits in France for a decade plus before Godard just literally co-opted the character wrote a film himself with Eddie Constantine playing Lemmy Caution and completely flipped the switch and made him deeply cynical, which is one really, really cool. And the kind of thing that just unfortunately could not happen today. Um, even interesting, I guess, in the context of that, uh, that Joker movie, the premiere to TIFF. I don't know if you know anything about that, that it, it screened once and Warner Brothers lawyers uh, sent some letters. Who knows? We'll ever see the light of day again. Um, this low budget movie kind of, I, I'll, I'll fill you in offline. Um, okay. But just the, the version of the, the world we live in now for movies and art versus the world then is, is very much a play here. I, I really love Alphaville. Alphaville is one of my favorite Godard films because I, I tend to like him most when he is clearly playing with genre in a way that you're seeing the films he revered and the filmmakers he revered and he's getting to apply all of his own ideas and kind of idiosyncrasies to that approach and making something that is just entirely new. And that's very much the case with Alphaville in terms of bringing in science fiction. But first and foremost, I mean, it is a noir. It is a classic noir. And it, it captures that vibe and it looks beautiful. Like, it looks as good as any noir ever made. Like, this is a director I wasn't even making the uh, connection with. But, I mean, there's some Chinatown there. There's some similar DNA between... Um... Uh, 
Jack, right? He's just his yeah. name is Jack in Chinatown. It's between him and Eddie, this version of Eddie Constantine's character. So that's, yeah. I mean, something like, I'll let you get back on track, but it's just like you can watch a good, 10 Godar films and then be randomly picking something off your Blu-ray shelf and just pick up something that reminds you of what he's done in the past. But anyway, continue with where you are. Sorry about that. No, but that's that's entirely the point, and that's kind of in doing this. I don't know. I don't know what percentage of our our kind of week in week out listeners have watched Godard movies. I would say there's probably a decent number who have seen maybe one movie here or there. Now, I don't know what the level of curiosity is, but part of the reason I want to the episode is because I just like movies are not what they are now. TV is not what it is now if it isn't for a lot of the stuff he did at this time and the kind of, I guess, the butterfly effect from that and how that just spanned out across the globe and came to redefine and things that were radical just became the language of movies. Like, the best proxy, I think, for Alphaville in terms of you're looking iconic films or to go to, it's Blade Runner. Blade Runner is an Alphaville ripoff. Like, so much of Blade Runner is just straight Alphaville. And that is something that I really appreciate because he was able to toy around with genre in that way before, I guess, postmodern ideas of those genres just came to be the norm, where everything was a kind of a neo-noir, for example. He's getting in at a, a, at a point where noir is still very much kind of stock and trade of Hollywood, just about, um, coming to the tail end of that. But by the time the 70s come around, neo-noir makes a comeback and a lot of the ideas that you'd find in neo-noir very much come from things that he explores in alphaville for example um likewise like something like band apart for heist movies there's so much of that which is just it's really interesting for a filmmaker with ideas as big and bold um both kind of ideologically and creatively as Godard is to be like i'm gonna make a heist movie I'm going to make a sci-fi. And this is just what he does over and over again. Uh, woman is a woman, which again, I regret that I didn't give you on the list. Like that's Godard loving musicals, just loving musicals, being obsessed with Bob Fosse's choreography. And of course, Godard being Godard, like with all these genres, it's not like he makes a straight MGM style musical, but he makes a Jean-Luc Godard film that's filtered through the prism of an MGM musical. And that is that is spectacular. Like that is something worth seeing. And it speaks to just how special, how unique he was as a filmmaker, because I, I think in theory, this is the kind of thing that a lot of filmmakers should do. Like a lot of the best, most powerful, most influential filmmakers of any era. If you've got the freedom where you could just be, I want to make this kind of movie. They should go and do that. But when they do, it often just becomes I don't know, a pretty stale recreation. It's just like that other thing. And I love it. And here it is. Which you could do that really well. And everyone's happy to see it, but it's not really innovative. Spielberg is a great example of someone who has dipped his toe in a whole lot of genres. Spielberg is someone who Jean-Luc Godard did not have a lot of kind things to say about at times in his career. Um, I, I know particularly I read something about Schindler's List. Um, Godard was not a fan of Spielberg basically making a spectacle out of the Holocaust and building sets like that and training the camera on them in that way. 
there's a whole different conversation we could start to go down on that on that particular subject but not many filmmakers have ever quite been able to just have their own distinct voice and then just apply it to different genres and different ideas in a way that creates something kind of as alive and as electric as a lot of these films yeah i mean even if you just break down the ones that you sent to me breathless is a thriller contempt is a uh you you know the dissolution of a marriage type of genre that's like in the romance realm but the sour side of things and then you've got a sci-fi thing like alphaville uh masculine feminine i'm gonna say without trying to pronounce it in any kind of correct (laughs) way uh is kind of toes a few different lines i think it's uh that movie really not reminded me of you know how i say it now but it's i i think chazelle had watched that very close to making guy and madeline on a park yeah, oh yeah for with, sure except without the uh without the uh the tragic end that is that, uh I, what i'd say about that is i think that is the Godard film that reminds me most of Truffaut, and that feels close to Truffaut and for two people that were very close and had such an important relationship early on, as time went on, that wasn't always the case. And I don't know if Godard would ever have liked to have had his films really be compared to like Truffaut, but I always feel like that has more of a vibe of a Francois Truffaut film um, than basically any other. And Truffaut is someone that I know Chazelle has talked about quite a lot. I've no doubt Godard is there. We know I like is there any uh, based on the trailer for Babylon maybe Chazelle is not aping the French new way for that but he's already had his Jacques Demy film as well so I I would not have any kind of surprise if in his head he hasn't already said oh well this is my guitar this is my Truffaut film um if I had been a young person in France between the the years of 1960 and 1967 I might have been um just like a a very prestigious well-regarded filmmaker because you know i would have seen lola umbrellas of shoreberg young girls of rochefort and then breathless uh i'm just gonna say uh, you know everyone in france was seeing those movies at the time though that's the thing yeah but but i would have been just so precocious and full of wonder at seeing them they would have changed my life uh had i seen them in the moment and it would have inspired me uh, and then you and some guy from North Carolina would be talking about <laughs> me on a podcast uh, so many years later. Um, yeah, what you say about just genre hopping like he was able to do is the dream. It's 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 something that someone has the agency to do once they get to a certain level, except he was just kind of starting out that way. Um, and the ability to pull it off and have us say such glowing things about films that have some through lines but are also distinctly their own things and their own types of film i'm very intrigued to see this musical at some point here in the next few weeks or so because obviously i love the jacques demi musicals i've seen so far and uh very interested to see what he thinks uh, it's not. It's not, it. it's not. Jacques to me. It's not. Yeah, it's, I wasn't. I'm not expecting that. But uh, there, there is, there is a feeling to him as a woman that does remind me of 
like Umbrella's of Sherberg. There's it puts me in a place. I actually finished watching and I was like, God, I'd really love to watch Umbrella's of Sherberg again soon. Um very different, Maybe. but interesting to see those kind of reimaginings of that genre and just to see what was such a dominant form of the Hollywood movie be filtered through this prism from across the world from young filmmakers working on minuscule budgets and working in much much quicker and more radical ways um and the the respect that they have for it too like that that's again it's part of what like the the fact that Jean-Luc Godard loved Samuel Fuller's films I don't know if you've ever seen any Fuller's films but Fuller is at times in his career just straight up making B movies and when he's not making B-movies, he's just like a tick removed from that. That's certainly true with contemporary lens. Looking at it now, you'd be like, oh, these are some pretty nasty B-movies. Like, um, the fact that, like, Godard is, is into that, and that is his version of Hollywood. But yet, he's someone like um, Bob Fosse's choreography. Just He, he literally name-checks Bob Fosse in A Woman is a Woman, I believe, along with Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly um, in kind of breaking the fourth wall-esque sequences. But that's something that is a really powerful. I don't know, the bluntness of it, because it's not like you can't watch films through different areas of history from Germany or from Hong Kong or wherever it might be and be like, oh, I can clearly see the influence of this type of film this genre this filmmaker whatever it might be very rarely does it look you right down the barrel of the camera and be like yeah i'm making one of these films and there's something that's just kind of so ballsy about that that i really admire that's that's one thing too because i i guess we let off with talking about him being a radical filmmaker stylistically and yet in watching his movies now that's not necessarily going to jump out without sufficient context being provided, without someone being like, okay, well, here's what else was being made in France. Um, if you want to look five years earlier, hear what was being made in the US at that time. But him being radical also extends to his subject matter in very, very profound ways. It's probably surprising um, in terms of prostitution, um, in terms of the war in Algeria, like there, there are a whole variety of kind of, I guess, uh, troubles that Godard got himself into in terms of films being banned in France temporarily because of the kind of subject matter they were actively tackling. Um, something like Pierre Lafou certainly also kind of leans into that then too. And that only gets more and more extreme as he goes on. Um, very, very much a Marxist for certainly the first kind of 10, 12 years of his career. Uh, La, La Chinoise is a film about Maoism and a group of radicals who decide to kind of live together and adopt Maoism as like their kind of core tenets of being. Like just really interestingly, boldly political and addressing difficult kind of subject matter head on in a way that I mentioned up top, he's like someone who came from a very kind of educated um, 
upper class background. Yet in terms of the way he approached filmmaking and just in, I'm going to train my camera on everyday life and contemporary issues. Not always. I'm not going to pretend like that contempt is about that. But in a lot of his other films, it was. It was this idea of how do we make film in a way that, okay, well, if the working class are not going to get the cameras themselves to be able to make these films, if that's not what we're going to do, how can how can we serve that? Which is also something that I think is interesting because just in changing the visual language of film to being so much handheld, like instantly with that, he began a process of democratizing movie making that opens the doors for so many people across the world in the generations to come. I thought of even one one more comparison to make for a movie I haven't even seen, and this is something that could just pop into your head, but uh, My Life to Live. Uh, there's so much uh, consternation and talk about... I, I love how, you, how you're going for the English titles for all these. Yeah, I mean, uh, you gotta play to your strengths, um, and even those aren't my strengths, but different tracks of course but uh you know a movie that's uh, been hotly debated the last week that i haven't seen this blonde about just like a system that's cho- uh, like takes a woman in chews her up and spits her out in such a uh, terrible problematic way and to do a movie like that in 1962 about a woman who in an attempt to take agency over her own life ends up losing that agency and just just sinks further and further and further into kind of her a uh, hell of the creation of others because of um where she's gone i mean that's is, is this one that got banned i saw in the uh kind of the description of breathless breathless was banned breathless four was times. Banned. um virus of v I don't know if Viva Civi was banned, which okay. probably just speaks to French attitudes on that compared to it's it's the two that like jump out. Um, uh, Le, Le Petit Soldat and I think Pierre LeFou may have been banned. Breathless was banned, but Le Petit Soldat, certainly at the time it came out in terms of what was happening in various french war efforts um in north africa that was that was very radical too particularly when godard had become this major cultural figure in france like again to kind of just zoom this right out godard is like just as central to culture of the 60s and the ideas of the 60s in a global sense as the beatles and andy warhol like that's that's like if you want to just kind of put together what is 60s culture like that's kind of what you're doing even if you could say oh look there's tons of people in america who are living their version of 60s and they do not know who jean-luc Godard was at that time the knock-on effect of what he's doing culturally did span out and did spread out and particularly in france at that time to have a filmmaker who had burst on the scene like that and the new wave is generally starting to take off his success, Truffaut's success before him is opening the door for all of their peers to start coming true. And then a film like Le Petit Soldat comes out and you're talking about French approaches to torture. Like 
that is so so bold um and again like stuff like that could be bold now the pedagogical country released it in but this is also 20 years removed from world war in europe um and the idea of being so transparent about france at that time as oh here's what we're doing that isn't good overseas that's not something that most filmmakers have taken on and that is to his credit i think to your larger point too this is something through this exercise when i'll be scrolling through letterboxing is there any interesting writing when i go from film to film and you get a lot of like shock jock one star two star reviews on guitarist films kind of decreeing the sexual and gender politics it's like these films were made in the 60s like they do not hold up in a contemporary lens of what's you know what's correct and how people should be represented like it just doesn't factor in that is not a part of what they are as a film it does not define what they are as a film it goes to your earlier point you've got to view films within the context both in terms of production, in terms of subject matter, in terms of politics of what they were at that time, that is what makes a film great or terrible in the larger scope of things. It's not always just purely what the contemporary reception is, but you can't just take it out of context and be like, hey, if that film was released right now, I think that guy should be cancelled, which that's not exactly the level of conversation that goes on with Guitar, but I do think there is possibly something with younger people who see these films and they're like, yeah, these films are misogynistic. It's like, yeah, you know what was misogynistic? The 1960s. You know, culture generally was not very good to women for a long time. It was a big, big problem. It's thankfully something that strides have been made to move away from. Um, but worth noting, based on, based on some of the, the points you made too, that, yeah, are these films like perfect under 2022 lens in terms of their ideas messages no um uh, there isn't some of them i think there is a lot of stuff that is there to be kind of lauded if you wanted to just purely view it in some kind of i don't know virtue signaling way but i think what is interesting with guitar is the range with which his films they kind of cover all bases in terms of the characters like yeah. within within a film you haven't seen yet he he has an interaction with a fascist and a jew calling each other names at the start of the movie like just back and forth this is in the musical it's sing song they're going back and forth and it's often something you see in his films where he'll be like here's a character who's very strongly aligned to the left Here's a character who's very strongly aligned to the right. Um, in the very old-fashioned definitions of those terms, which, Andrew, they have come all the way back into fashion now. Um, but that's that's something that I also admire about his films, and I guess does kind of align with his intellectualism too, which is just, this is the world. I'm I'm going to paint you a picture of the world. I'm not saying this is a representation of a good world or this is a representation of a bad world. In fact, I'm not telling you what to feel at all. Uh, Goddard was obsessed with Brecht and Brechtian ideas of drama and the idea of making the audience an active participant, but making them uncomfortable in their active participation. So there are things in his films that are there purely to shock the audience and to make them think, 
to provoke and to start conversations. That to me is something that is exciting about his films. It's very healthy. You don't watch his film and be like, oh, well, I agree with this or I don't agree with this. You watch his film and you come out of it and you zoom out and you you see something that's much bigger than just kind of a time capsule in its own way. Also, I'm not sure we're not supposed to like think that a lot of these male characters are absolute scumbags throughout. Like, I think that's part of the point in some of these movies. Contempt, definitely. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I agree with that, but I also... I don't think Jean-Luc Godard in the 60s was probably the gentlest, most chivalrous man no. around because it no, was just but I, a very, I very was, different time. I think he was pre- presenting people as he viewed them and as they were. And yeah. we make our own judgments for better or for worse, but also that doesn't necessarily become a reflection on the quality of the film that he's making. And I mean, f- film throughout history to a degree depending on what it is is a snapshot of the time and i mean we can all understand and be mad at the the politics of the era but without like taking away something from the filmmaking merits so the the ultimate example of that the ultimate example of that which is distressing disturbing incredibly problematic film becomes film in its modern form. The earliest point you can pinpoint that to where there is an evolution, where it takes on ideas about narrative. It takes on a progression in terms of editing. That comes from D.W. Griffith. I don't know if you're familiar with the works of D.W. Griffith. I don't know if you've seen his name online, but one of the films that is absolutely like foundational in terms of, oh, this is how film was born into the idea of how we construct the story and capture vision now is the birth of a nation, which is Uh, one of the most racist films ever made. And that is to your point. It's again, it was made in 1914 uh, by a white guy who yeah, would not be someone I would like to go back in time and hang out with. That's kind of part of any art is you're not necessarily going to agree with its depiction, with its representation. Um, I We've probably got sidetracked on this because Godard's movies do not hold up like the birth of a nation. That is certainly not yeah, the issue yeah, here. Yeah, Godard but, is not in that territory. Fuck that guy. But like, you know, Godard is, yeah, that, there are levels. The point, <laughs> the point being, as time goes on, uh, things don't quite look and feel the same. And you can't just purely hold it up to, well, this is how we live right now. And this is how you've got to factor in when things were made, why they were made, how they were made. And that is some of the most important elements of Godard's legacy too, is the when, why, and how things were made and what that then launches for other filmmakers. Uh, is there anything anything else we haven't covered here from your perspective, just in terms of even among these films, was there any that, like of the films you watch, do you have a favorite? Is there one that you'd say that's that's my favorite or anything that jumped out in them that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I think my favorite's either Alphaville or Contempt. I think the best of the ones I've seen is Breathless. Uh, the worst is probably... 
I'm just going to say masculine feminine because I don't know how to put the emphasis on each syllable. It's a masculine feminine. It's you just need oh. to an basically at the end of both. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Uh, I think I was, I was probably the worst slash my least favorite, but I still very much liked it. Um, there's just I just have problems with the ending on that one. Like it's just it gets to a point. I'm like, what? Why the fuck did this happen? Uh, but otherwise, thought it was very good. Uh, Band of Outsiders is kind of delightfully weird in the way yes. it progresses and the just the interplay between the three characters and the what's happening. Obviously, I'm gonna love the dance scene in the cafe. That's something that I, I thought was very strange and very compelling to watch with her weird narration about how she's wondering how the guys are watching her dance in the scenario uh yeah i think it's i, a, I love a, like a, that, that's a great example too like the, the dance sequence gets talked about a lot just in terms of the dance sequence which is great it's a great sequence of cinema but it's all the other things around that like where you get into each person's head we hear what they're thinking throughout it then they all say they're going to stop talking to each other and he mutes the sound for like 60 seconds like maybe even longer like all of those things are really fun and playful i just i also really like the setup i find the setup of that film really engrossing all of the stuff in like the classroom when they're learning english and one of the guys is kind of gradually moving his way around the classroom and passing notes I just find something really engaging about the the whole kind of setup for for Band of Par, and then it's it's a heist film. Uh, it's a yeah. pretty weird heist film in terms of ultimately the heist elements, but I I I love what it's playing with. I love how it kind of gets to its core storyline. And it's the second time we get to see Anna Karina dance in a Godard movie. This one's a little more happy. The first time it's a little more depressing, uh, but both scenes so striking. And she's such a just striking actress. She's a great performer. And obviously it's, it's a little different watching someone perform in a language I don't understand. But I think that makes the degree of difficulty for that, like coming across to me even harder. And she's I think I find her tremendous as well as uh, Belmondo, I thought is awesome as well in Breathless and I, I see that I will get to see him in another film as well as I add on to my uh, list um, as we get past this project. But you're like, Andrew, here's where I tried to steer you right. Here's one area where I steered you wrong, like finish the job kind of thing. Um, well, ju- just on that subject, too, because it is worth, worth saying we we settled on this very quickly after Qatar. Um, passed away and the access to these films wasn't necessarily as great as it is mm. now um, Criterion Channel have a really fantastic and pretty comprehensive retrospective up there and tribute to him at the moment I, I have no idea how long that will stick around for I would say probably through the end of the next month would be my guess for some of those films but something have, like um, 23 films I think right now and then the only one of the ones that I watched that I could not get on Prime HBO Max that I had to go to Criterion was A Band Apart. Um, so the others are other places. But And I was going to say, A Band Apart is one that is not easy to find on streaming. I don't know who holds the rights or what, what that kind of is tied to, but that is a film that generally doesn't appear online. Um, true streaming means very, very often. So 
there are a few like that that are just there very easy to go and check out right now so if you haven't done so before definitely worth doing so um there's actually there's quite a few that i have not seen before and are not always easy to see that i'm gonna make sure to go and check out before that goes away too um the likes of tuva bian is there um and kind of a lot of kind of mid to late Godara, which aren't aren't always the most readily available um I, I think the one other thing here, I don't know how we'll get ourselves back to do another episode related to the French New Wave or which filmmaker we'd do that for. Maybe when we get into like Schrader mode ahead of the next Schrader, we do a, a Robert Brisson episode and you could just be like, oh, holy shit, Schrader's just been stealing this guy's thing the whole time. Like, yeah, there's three filmmakers and Schrader makes no secret of the fact he just takes all their stuff and puts it together. Um, but one of the interesting things too, like you talk about Jean-Paul Belmondo going to appear later, the great thing with these filmmakers all being friends and all coming to prominence this time is the, the mix and match nature for 20 years where you really get to know the actors and you're seeing familiar faces pop up everywhere in a way, not dissimilar to what happened in Italy too, between Fellini and Antonioni um, but that is something that you really get a sense of those performers and it's fascinating just how rich that becomes as kind of when a group of people with really strong ideas but different approaches different styles like all very different filmmakers um, the fact that we now group them all as one movement is kind of hilarious because the variance in what uh an Agnes Varda film is compared to a Godard or a Claude Chabrol or Truffaut Demi like there's there's maybe a scale you could maybe dot them along a scale and the progression of where you get from one to the other but they they are very very different someone like Alan René I love Alan René's work is so far removed from so many of the other new wave filmmakers um, but they were able to just propel something and it's what's really interesting too when you think of Qatar and you think of the influence of Breathless on something like Bonnie and Clyde and then Bonnie and Clyde inspiring Arthur Penn and then from there you get something like five easy pieces just kind of by association uh, Bob Raffleson comes on the scene and Jack Nicholson comes to prominence through that and then the doors are open in Hollywood and all of a sudden it's like okay forget about all these old studio directors have been doing this for 40-50 years like yeah let's give money to this guy let's give money to this guy and Coppola gets in the door and he brings all of his friends in and that comparison is frequently made in terms of the kind of knock-on effect in a very similar way to Truffaut leading to Godard you get Coppola leading to Lucas and Scorsese and Brian De Palma and Paul Schrader and that whole kind of core group of filmmakers, Steven Spielberg of course I don't know if that happens, I no let me rephrase that, I know that doesn't happen anymore, I honestly I don't know if that could ever happen again, I don't know what kind of movement would be so radically successful, maybe I'm 
maybe I'm not looking at this in the way I should and that maybe it does happen and the way that happens now is the MCU. Like, seriously, maybe that is the way where one director gets in and they do a great job and then they don't want to direct the next one. They hand it off to a friend and they hand it off to a friend and all the same actors. And I say that and that's one of the most depressing things I could possibly say. But I'm trying to think of, I don't know, where where is there kind of the opportunity for a pipeline of one filmmaker being able to open a door for another and for another in a really meaningful way, in a way that makes films not of colossal scale, but of some scale where they can have an actual meaningful impact. I don't know. Maybe it just brings us back to the kind of, I don't know, dead in movies, uh, film in crisis conversations that we have quite a lot. But the kind of, the movements, the progressions that led to the most iconic films of the late 20th century. That doesn't happen anymore. And even if you want to go maybe not as closely related, but you get like the American independent cinema, which gives you Soderbergh, which gives you Tarantino, which gives you Spike Lee, um, which gives you PTA, which gives you Wes Anderson, like all that coming from late 80s into the early 90s. Like, I don't know where the follow up to that even is. Um, and I, I just, it is always something when you watch Godard and obviously also factoring into that is like, uh, you watch Breathless and there's like Melville's playing a character. Um, I think Jacques Rivette has a cameo on that as well. Do uh, you just have all these other figures dotted within his movies in a way we talked about even when we did our Spielberg uh, pod a couple of weeks back where you're watching E.T. and Yoda pops up like where you've got these filmmakers who are able to collaborate or are in constant dialogue it kind of feels like this kind of ideal i don't know hope for creativity in a real like tech startup venture capital bullshit way but it doesn't seem to happen with movies anymore yeah i heard he was gonna direct one of the ant-man movies and it just didn't work out um, yeah he was uh he I'd was lo- gonna be part of that personally i would love to see jean-luc Godard's Ant-Man. Wouldn't we all, Adam? <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Uh, rest, rest in peace to a real one. <laughs> Indeed. I think that's pretty much it. Um, I hope we've done an okay job of giving some sort of crash course, some introduction as to why Godard is such an important figure, um, not just to movies, but culturally. If you want to get from the point of how mid 20th century culture became what it was and then how that continued to evolve to a point where you get into the 90s and you get into the 21st century i just Godard's fingerprints are all over that um even in ways that maybe kind of there's they're passed through multiple filters now i think that's that's one of the most interesting things about him is i feel like it would be possible for someone to go out and make a film that's very deeply inspired by Godard's approach to filmmaking, his ideas, how he worked without ever having seen a Jean-Luc Godard film. Because they may feel like it's being inspired by someone else, but they were inspired by Godard. And there's 
there's just that kind of passed down lineage now that you very much see at work in a lot of contemporary film. So an absolutely colossal, colossal loss um, to the world of cinema, but uh, no one could ask for any more from Jean-Luc Godard, who was left behind. A truly formidable body of work. Who knows, Andrew, if I will ever see everything that Jean-Luc Godard made. Um, I'll work on it, though. We'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do. All right, that does it for this episode. We'll be back next week. Um, we have something lined up that I'm not going to announce. We'll announce it on Twitter if I get the green light. But Andrew Snyder may potentially have some very reckless plans that could interfere with the plan for what the what the subject of the next episode will be. So I don't want to announce it right now. Uh, we'll see how it plays like out. I, I should like have a clear sense of whether or not the recklessness is warranted sooner than originally thought so okay all right uh should i be alarmed by that who knows we'll work that one out off air um but yeah we've we've got something fun coming anyway and if that one ends up put off for a little while we'll have something else you'll hear from us next week regardless we're into coming into october andrew so we should probably uh work on some some horror episodes, some Halloween team stuff. Um, think up maybe uh, there's a couple of interesting horror movies coming out soon, contemporary movies, but also maybe we could do something else uh, like we did last year and take a look back at something too. But we'll workshop all that, all sorts of fun stuff coming. And I think we'll have some more TV talk probably pretty soon. We're certainly going to have some music talk this month, um, possibly a couple of episodes based on, I know, conversations we've had before. So, Make sure you're subscribed. Make time for this on Twitter at Make Time for This, and you'll be on top of all things pop culture here at the Eurostep Podcast Network. Of course, you should also subscribe to the rest of the GSPN pods, all of our sports podcasts. Andrew and I are going through it. We're in real nail biting mode with the Milwaukee Brewers right now, cruising for a bruising. You can hear us navigate the ups and downs of what remains of the 2022 Milwaukee Brewers season. Will we be talking about playoff basketball? There's a chance. I mean, time is running out, but there is a chance. You mean baseball? Did I say basketball? You did, because we're definitely going to be talking about we, we will be talking about later that. in the year. <laughs> it would be a big disappointment if on the Eurostep <laughs> Podcast Network main feed, home to the Eurostep Podcast and Win in Six, Eurostep hosted by Ty and Rowan, Winning six hosted by myself and Jordan Tresky. If we were not talking about Bucks playoff basketball, and we will be talking about Bucks basketball back in your life very, very soon. Preseason's about to start, things ramping up there. And of course, we are talking about the Green Bay Packers and talking to Tundra. Things are started well there, could be better, room for growth, but that's maybe that's a positive development. I mean, not that the Packers are great week one starters. But you don't want to peak too early. I think it would be nice to see the Packers, in fact, peak late this year, uh, maybe in the playoffs. But all of that, so much more. We've got it all covered here on the Eurostep Podcast Network. If you need details on any of that, you need to find any of those other podcasts, go to gspn.info. You can get into our Discord there. If you want to talk movies, we've got a Caption Cellular channel in there, um, but also all the Wisconsin Pro Sports teams, we've got them covered too. I think that's it. Anything else, Andrew? Final thoughts? No, the six of us at GSBN just exist in these screens to 
talk about sports and pop culture, and we couldn't love it anymore. We're, we're never in person anywhere. Just these screens. We'll see if that continues. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Anna Karina. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.